Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. I want to talk to you today about the disappointment of not waiting. And as a matter of fact, I want to talk to you about disappointment in general. Uh, we're going to look at John's narrative of the birth of Christ. And John's narrative um, is so different from Matthew and Luke's narrative of the birth of Christ. We typically get our, our, our manger scene and the, uh, the baby born in the stable and all of that imagery from Matthew and from Luke. Rarely do we hear from John's gospel except in Handel's Messiah. There are a few phrases in there that you might be familiar with if you've heard Handel's Messiah before. But we rarely look at that as a traditional Christmas story. Mark's gospel is so short, it leaves out several different elements because the word for Mark's gospel is, guess what? Immediate. The word that is repeated over and over and over again in Mark's gospel is immediately they did this, immediately they did that, uh, instantly they did this. And so Mark's is the shortest gospel, and we don't have the birth narrative there. But I want to look at John chapter 1, so that way it gives you time to turn there this morning. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation, as I often do in this setting, so you can be aware of that uh, before we get there this morning. So let me ask you a question, and I've mentioned this for the past few weeks. If you've peeked at your gifts before when you were a kid, or maybe even as an adult, right? And, and then you have to pretend like you didn't see it and put on this, this mask of, oh, excitement when you know what you're already getting because you've already taken a look either in the closet or wherever the hiding space is. Do you remember what I'm talking about? There's a little bit of disappointment in not waiting. How many of you have seen the movie The Sixth Sense with uh, Bruce Willis? Can I give you a spoiler alert? If, you, if I can't, you need to speak up now. Have you ever been watching a show and you, you were like really caught up in this series or in the movie, but somebody else has already seen the next episode or has seen the movie and they will ruin it for you? Like finding out that Bruce Willis was dead throughout the whole movie in The Sixth Sense? What? No! You ruined it for me because you can't watch the movie without no. I mean, because it's, it's to the very end. You don't know he's dead. He's a ghost. And so, have you ever been disappointed when somebody's told you the end of the story? Or has told you, do you remember, uh, how many of you remember the, uh, <laughs> I'm dating myself here, Dallas. You remember the, you remember, who shot JR? You remember that? I, as, I was young enough as a kid, we would do the finger thing and you'd do this and you can't do that in school today or you get expelled. But still, you remember, you're like, who shot JR? And they had you hanging on every episode, right? Because you had to wait till the next week to watch it. You couldn't binge watch these things. And there's a lot of disappointment in not waiting. Some of us don't like to wait. How many of you enjoy waiting? All right, I think you're lying. <laughs> I'm going to ask Jim. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, here's the thing. I don't like waiting. We have been conditioned in our culture not to have to wait. And when we have to wait any length of time beyond what we think we should have to wait, what happens? We get irritated. We might even grumble a little bit. Or we might even say something sarcastically out loud, hoping somebody hears us but not really wanting them to hear us, but we want them to sense our displeasure. And you're chuckling because you know what I'm talking about. There's another aspect of disappointment. This time of year is a disappointment to many people. Though it's a joyous occasion, probably for the vast majority of people, Christmas is a disappointment for many people. Maybe because you're not earning enough money to provide what you would want for your family. 
Maybe because somebody passed away this recently, uh, recently this year or in the past few years that this time of year is not the same anymore because of that. Or, or maybe it's a disappointment because of any number of things. Maybe it's a disappointment because of the focus of this season is on somebody that you struggle with, Jesus. Maybe God's a disappointment to you. Maybe you're a disappointment to yourself. I don't know. I don't know every one of your situations. But disappointment is a reality of life in this fallen and broken world. And how we deal with disappointment is half the battle in knowing how to make it through seasons like this, to make it through life. Some of the most disappointed people or yeah, disappointed people are those who haven't learned to navigate with grace this life in Christ. Some of the most bitter people are those who have allowed disappointment to take such a deep root in them that they've become bitter and resentful. They're angry people. They don't have a good thing to say about anyone else, and they don't really feel good about themselves either. I want to go to John chapter 1, and actually don't have it in here. I'm going to read from the first chapter. My daughter was on my phone this morning, and look at all those little girl things on there. All right. <clears throat> John, I'm sorry. I'd forgotten I loaned her my phone for a minute. Uh, John chapter 1, New Living Testament translation. Excuse me, New Living Translation. I'm going to get scolded for that afterwards. All right. Here we go. The first part of this isn't, oh, it is in there. It's not in my notes. Good. I'm glad it's on the screen. In the beginning, the word already existed. You hear me quote this often from here. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. Now, there's a lot of wordplay going on there. There are a thing called triplets in the New Testament or, or, or uh, not triplets. Yeah, I guess it would be tri triplets where there are a series of threes. Series of threes in the Bible are not unheard of and not unknown. Actually, when you see a series of three in the Bible, it means completeness or wholeness. Father, Son, and Spirit, holy, holy, holy. When you see anything like that, it's a sense of completeness. The Shema, which the Jews recite daily in their prayer time, is a series of triplets. If you look at this, John is using the same type and style to say, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, he was with God in the beginning. He's using this series of repetition. And then he goes on to write, the Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. So what is he saying about the Word? The Word was God. And he's referring to the Word as this man we know as Jesus and he's going to tell us something in a few more verses that that word will become flesh or did become flesh and dwelt among us. And if you look, this is a capital W word, okay? When do we capitalize a word in the middle of a sentence? What do we call that? A proper noun, a person, a place, or a thing. Well, this is not a place or a thing. He's referring to the word as a person, and not just any person, he's referring to the word as Christ, the living Lord, the Messiah who was to come and who did come and who was God and was with God. And so this word he is talking about is Jesus. And this is what he says, the word gave life to everything that was created. Now go back to Genesis and what do we see? And you've heard me say this a million times too, and I apologize for the redundancy, but how did God create everything? Speaking it into existence. God used the word to bring everything into existence. And John is telling us that, that the word manifested the created order of everything that has ever existed. It brought life into the world. And it also brought light to everyone. And it's not an it, it's a he, by the way. And it says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So I could walk over to our Advent candles today, and I could snuff each one of those out. This light is unsnuffable. 
There should have been a ton of amens with that, but I'll let you off easy right now, okay? I'm not one of those screamers and yellers, and well, I kind of get excited a time or two, but I'm not one of those, give me an amen, hallelujah kind of guys, but there are certain things that should stimulate the soul with a sense of joy and excitement. But it doesn't, does it? This time of year has become such tradition for us, we neglect the significance of it 2,000 years later. God sent a man, John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. Not believe in him, John, but believe. Did you catch that? John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who was the true light, who gives light to everyone, was actually coming into the world. And so John preceded Jesus, not only in birth, and a miraculous birth at that, if you look at the, the, uh, the, the narrative of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the miraculous nature of John's birth, John was also a family member in, in the same family lineage of Jesus. But he was born a few months before. Not only was he born a few months before, his calling on his life was to prepare the way of the Lord. He even says in the Gospels, John does, I must decrease and he must increase. And the one who is coming after me, I'm not even worthy to tie the sandals on his feet. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light, and it was the light that was to come into the world. And then verse 10 is where my notes pick up here and not here anymore. So I'll read from my notes. He came into the very world he created. This is the word that John's been talking about. And here's the sad reality. What does it say? The world did not recognize him. So what is John establishing? This word was with God. He was God. He was with God in the beginning. And this word is the one who brought everything into existence. Now, this word becomes human or flesh, and he comes into the world he created. And what does the world do? It doesn't recognize its own creator. He came to his own people. Jesus was a Jewish male born in the line of David, as we'd already talked about last week. It had been prophesied for centuries. It was the one unconditional covenant given to David and the house of David that David would always have a descendant to reign on the throne in Israel. Jesus in the line of David through his stepfather Joseph has now fulfilled that unconditional covenant and Jesus' kingdom lasts forever. So he comes to the Jewish people, the one through whom the Messiah was proclaimed to, uh, prophesied to have come from, and his own people, it doesn't say they didn't recognize him. What does it say they did? They rejected him. But to all who believed in him, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. There is no label ethnicity. There's nothing that separates at this point. But to all who believed in him and accept, accepted him, he gave the right to become what? The children of God. Not to become a Jew, not to become a Christian in the terms that we use it today, but to become a child of God. That should have been an amen statement there too. They are reborn, listen to what he says, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Was Jesus' birth a birth that came from human passion? And our birth as a reborn believer in Christ, a child of God, does not come from human passion, but by God and God alone. Verse 14, so the word became human or became flesh and he made his home. I love this. He made his home with us. 
Thank you, Mr. Barone. I love you. I was looking straight at you, too, so I'm glad we caught eyes. He made his home with us. He said, okay, my desire is that they will be with me. So let me fix the problem once and for all. I will go to them. And I'll give myself to them. And I will become one of them knowing what they go through. The temptations that they struggle with. The disappointments that knock at the doorstep. I'll know the feelings of physical pain. I'll understand the depths of despair they go through. But I will do and accomplish what they've never been able to do or accomplish to bring salvation to their souls. And so he did. He became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. See, that is the very depth and characteristic of the nature of who God is. He is full of love and faithfulness. He gets a bad rap for the Old Testament because a lot of people say he was this wrathful, vengeful, hateful God. But if you read the Old Testament fluidly, and with a clear understanding of the very nature of God as being love and faithfulness, you actually see he's the same God who is here yesterday, today, and forever. See, love doesn't turn a blind eye to injustice, but in due time, justice is eventually served. Jesus isn't some cuddly teddy bear like we've made him out to be or some grandpa whose lap we can go sit on and he just bounces this on his knee and makes everything okay. See, Jesus is full of grace and truth is what John tells us in his gospel here. And what does it mean to be full of grace and full of truth? Because the problem is we have teachers that only emphasize one or the other. They don't emphasize the both of Jesus. And in, in, in that sense, they don't get the fullest expression of the nature of God when they're only expressing grace. We have a lot of churches in our nation today that only express the grace side of God who say, it's okay, do whatever you want with whomever you want. God's going to be okay because he loves you and you'll be in heaven anyway. Well, that is actually sending somebody to hell, that kind of teaching. And I, I don't mean to be as crass about that as I am right now, but... There's a lack of truthful teaching about what God's grace really is and what it looks like. Yes, it covers a multitude of sins. But the truth is that you can be exempted from that grace by your own decision. We don't like that. We like the God who gives and gives and gives till it hurts and then gives some more. And there's no consequences for any bad action. But then we yell at God because he's not a God of justice. We want him to be full of grace, but we also want him to kill the murderer and the child rapist and all this other stuff. And we speak out of both sides of our mouths. There will be a day called a final judgment where the goats will be separated from the sheep, the Bible tells us. With the wheat from the chaff, the sinner who is unrepentant from the child of God who knows the depth of their sin but has surrendered their life to God. You can't have it both ways. This is why Jesus came into the world. He became one of us to dwell among us and to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He pulled out every stop except for one, your choice. And see, we bemoan the fact that God won't rectify the evil in this world. He did on the cross. He provided a way into the holy presence of God. You don't have to go sacrifice goats and lambs and, and oxen and, and doves or anything anymore for forgiveness of sin. And there are still some cultures that do that. 
That's my brother Kevin Reardon. You just came back from a trip and you saw shrines and sacrificial areas in Guatemala, right? Where they still sacrifice animals to these so-called gods. It's still a practice in many nations today. And we say we're more civilized than that, but we sacrifice to our own gods. We sacrifice our lives on the altar of work, our children on the altar of convenience, or just we don't want to hurt our kids' feelings, and so we'll give them everything they want when they want it to make them happy because we weren't happy kids when we grew up. And so we go to the reverse and cause a lot of damage in the process, don't we? Sorry, I'm off on a tangent. Here's the reality of this whole scenario. Jesus came to fix what was broken, and in fixing what was broken, guess what he did? He provided us a way out. So we're all in pits until we receive Christ. And he has this extension down into the pit because he knows that it is just out of reach to get out on our own. And we've been clawing at this dirt-sided pit forever. We're disappointed in ourselves. We're disappointed in everybody else because nobody else has given us a hand up. Nobody else is bailing us out. Nobody else is doing anything for us. And so we curse the world. We curse God when Jesus has been doing this the whole time. But then we curse the hand of God that's reaching down to us because he's not doing enough for us. And I don't know what more we could want God to do for us than to send his only son into the world. God, you should be doing more. I've done everything I can conceivably do. The rest is up to you. We don't like that. We don't like to take ownership. We like to cast blame. It's been happening since the garden. So it says, he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. John is actually testifying to the fact that he literally saw Jesus. He watched him. He, he, he was there in this intimate relationship, physically there with him in these different places, seeing all of this. In verse 15, John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, this is the one I've been talking about when I said that someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. From his abundance, we have all received the gracious, one gracious blessing after another. My guess is some of you don't feel that way. Some of you don't feel that you've received, received one gracious blessing after another. Because you've convinced yourself the world's against you, your spouse is against you, your boss is against you, life is against you. God's against you. You've, you've convinced yourself that everyone is against you, and so you've put up this defense. You're never going to be burned or hurt again. And you've allowed pride to drive your life, and you become closed off. And this pride manifests itself in arrogance, in anger, in rage, in unforgiveness, in bitterness. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus came to set the captives free, just like Moses was sent to let the Israelites free from Egypt. How many things does God have to do to show you the extent of his love and faithfulness before you finally say, okay, I give in. And I give up trying to do it on my own. From his abundance, we've all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is God himself, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. In a ministry class in my undergrad, I think Sarah Lee was a part of that class too, it's called the Ministry of Leadership. 
or leadership in ministry. I can't remember which, but I remember one assignment during the day was when we came into class, we're sitting in the classroom with our classmates, the professor at the front of the classroom said, I want you to draw a picture of God. And so a buddy of mine who's in ministry today, he draw, he drew, he's just a nut. He drew Jesus driving a semi-trailer and truck, and he said he was a trucker for Jesus. I don't know. It was something weird like that. And another person drew this just ball of light shining in all different directions. And another person uh, drew this grandfatherly figure. Do you know the best picture of God is Jesus? And though we may not have a photo of him or an accurate depiction in some form of painting or drawing, we have words that speak volumes about who he was and what he looked like and how he acted and who he loved and how he lived his life. Jesus is the epitome, the very visible evidence of the unseen God. The consequences of not waiting on God or spiritual blindness and unbelief. And I realize time is of the essence, so give me just a few more minutes of your time this morning. What happens with disappointment? Disappointment, if it's not dealt with properly, leads to a lack of belief, which leads also to an unwillingness to see. When you allow disappointment to so overtake you, you become blind because it leads to a lack of belief. To the point where you're not willing to see. You're never, have you ever been to, and I've been this way, so please understand this. I'm speaking out of experience. I've been to a bottom of a pit before in my own life where I can't see any way out and everything looks dark. You ever been there? You ever been to a point in life where you think, I can't go any lower than where I am now? And you think everything else and everyone else, as I said earlier, everyone else is against me? And of course, we are our own worst enemies. We're our, our, we ourselves are oftentimes our greatest disappointment because we know what's in here and what's in here that the rest of the world doesn't know anything about. And so we condemn ourselves. And so we live in a sense of disappointment of never having accomplished what we set out to accomplish or do what we had thought we were going to do. I was going to be a dump truck driver. I, I'm serious. I had a concrete truck and a dump truck. I wanted to be a concrete truck driver and a dump truck driver. And I would ride those things down the hill of my driveway when I was a kid. But then I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to be the president. And I wanted to be all these things. I wanted to do this. I wanted to do that. And it's not that those things were bad. But oftentimes... Do we not get disappointed when things don't happen the way we hoped they would or when we aren't at a place where we thought we should be by this point in life? And we get let down because things aren't happening for us the way we had planned for them to happen. And there's a, there's a scripture that says, many are the plans of men or mankind, but God directs his steps. <laughs> we don't like, we have plans galore. But it's God who actually directs our steps. A lack of belief leads to an unwillingness to see. You know what's interesting about this whole scenario with John is that he came into the world, the world didn't recognize him. Why didn't the world recognize its own creator? Actually, there are some within the world who did. The irony of all of this, it, were the, it was these pagan astrologers from far off out in the east <laughs> They saw the signs pointing to this divine moment in human history, and they followed this star divinely appointed in the skies, whether it be a comet, a convergence of planets aligning, we don't know, but they followed it, and they came to the place where Jesus was. By this point in time, more than likely, according to scholars, he would have been a toddler, toddling around. But they came to him and they offered him gifts of frankincense, gold, and myrrh. And they bowed down and they worshipped him But because they saw something the rest of the world didn't see. 
a king divinely appointed for that time in history and for all of history. But his own didn't recognize him when he came. The one that his, their prophets had prophesied about. If they had just looked at the words of their own prophets and seen that he was born in Bethlehem. He was in the line of David. I mean, if you're really doing critical study of a subject and you're really willing to see with eyes that are open to possibilities, you might be able to pull back the shroud and see beyond your own preconceived notions every once in a while. You won't get that in the universities of our day and age. And you won't get that in some of our churches either. But you will also not hear in this place me telling you to take what I'm telling you hook, line, and sinker. You need to go study this yourself. Seriously. Because I'm not a spoon feeder. I'm not a coddler. I love talking about this stuff, teaching this stuff, preaching this stuff, researching this stuff. And there have been course corrections in my own faith walk along the way because I've had eyes to see and ears to hear. And sometimes it's been disappointing. Because as I've read through Scripture, scripture as I've devoted myself to the written word and to the living word, God is sometimes... Opened my eyes to the reality that the way I had been believing about a thing or a subject was not biblically accurate. But it had been something I had carried from childhood, teenage years, or just something I had concocted in my own mind by reading between the lines and filling in the blanks, and it was not true. It's those who are willing to see and give up long-held beliefs that are not rooted in Scripture that are able to grow into what we call mature believers, children of God who see God as they are truly seen and who know him as they are truly known. I'm not saying I've perfected it or gotten there. There are still things that are hang-ups for me. In, in, in the church and Christianity and my own long-held beliefs that I, I have to be willing to lay a lot of this stuff on the altar, not this stool, but you get what I'm trying, the imagery I'm going for. I have to be willing to lay, all right, God, I don't know you as much as I want to, and I will never know you as intimately as I desire to this side of heaven. And so I'm pressing in and I'm pressing in, and he's saying, okay, are you willing to give up everything for me? Even your willingness to know everything. Are you? And I have to come to the point where I say, yes, but it's disappointing. Because I want to know everything there is to know. I want to believe everything there is to believe. I want, I want complete everything right now. And he says, you can't. Just as he told Moses, you cannot see me face to face, for if you see me, you will die. But I'll show you this. I'll let you see the after effect of my passing. You cannot see or conceive or understand this, but I will show you up to this point. And the rest you have to depend on is trust in me for the rest. Someday you'll see clearly. It won't be looking through a dim window or a foggy mirror. You will see completely, but you have to trust me in the meantime for the things you cannot see now. Another thing that disappointment leads to is the lack of belief that also leads to rejection. A lack of belief that leads to rejection. As I mentioned, in human nature, we try to fill in the blanks. How many of you fill in the blanks to the truth you do not know. We have a ton of these books from the Old Testament called the Apocrypha. Have you heard of the Apocrypha? Or what's called the Pseudopigrapha, which I'm butchering the terminology there, but it's these books that have been written that are not canonized scripture, that have been written from Jewish leaders and or Christian leaders of the past. Have you ever heard of the books of Enoch? Where do we get the pictures of the Nephilim? 
that are traditional to the church today. The Nephilim in Genesis 6, these giants. And where do we get the, where do we get the actual passages that these Nephilim that roamed the land during the time of Noah were the offspring of the demons that had fallen to earth with human women sexually copulating. It's not in the Bible. It's in the books of Enoch. And so these writers of the Old Testament leaned heavily sometimes on these extra-canonical writings and were sometimes influenced by them, but those were not canonized scripture. And I know that probably bugs some people out, weirds you out. The reality is, this is something that's happened for generation to generation to generation. We have Christian authors today who fill in the blanks. When's Jesus returning? How many books do you know that are out there that have actually dated Christ's return to this date, at this time, and this is going to happen? Yeah, it's, it is a money-making field out there. Jesus is returning, but I believe in the word where Jesus says, nobody knows the day or the hour of my return except the Father in heaven. Jesus says he doesn't even know. And he's going to be waiting on the Father's command. Okay, now. And he won't go, are you sure? I thought we could give it a couple more minutes at least. No, because he trusts the Father immensely. And when God says now, it's now. We like to fill in the blanks. And when things don't live up to our blank filling, we get mad. When people don't live up to our expectations, we get angry. And let me explain. When I first came to church here, and some of you may remember this, there was a Wednesday night class that the senior pastor always taught. And becoming the senior pastor at the time, I stepped into that role. And I started talking about traditions and those different kinds of things. And I, I asked, I said, how many of you in this room tonight uh, were, were taught growing up in the church that it was sinful to play cards. Nearly everybody raised their hand. Huh? On the sa only on the Sabbath. But I said, just playing cards in general. Most people shot their hands up, right? And I said, how many of you have played some form of card game within the past month to two months? And several sheepish hands went up. I said, okay, how many of you were taught that going to the movies was sinful? About every hand went up. And how many of you have seen a movie, even if it's at home on your own TV within the past week? Right? How many of you were taught it was sinful for a woman to wear, we called them slacks back in the day, pants or slacks, especially to church? How many of you are wearing slacks today? Right? And so... What I was getting at is, why do we hold on to these things and really put other people under the pressure of these things if they're not explicitly scriptural? It's the difference between legalism and liberation. See, what Jesus did when he came onto the scene, and this is what ticked off the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, teachers of the law. The reason they hated Jesus so much is because not only did they actually institute and keep the law of Moses intact, they filled in the blanks where the law of Moses didn't quite speak into the current situation. And they would heap on the backs of the people more burdens than they were able to carry. And Jesus even scolds them for that behavior because they weren't even willing to lift a finger to help somebody else out. Oh, we're willing to condemn you, but we're not going to help you. This is help. You're going to hell. I grew up with that teaching. And I was scared to death of God. And you know why I was scared of God? Because I didn't see the grace of God which covers a multitude of sin. It doesn't allow for sin to continue, but it covers the multitude of sin. 
And so we do this in our churches. We make true mountains out of molehills or we make mountains out of just sand. And then we hold others to a standard we ourselves could never keep. And Jesus held us to a standard, guess what, that we couldn't keep, but guess what he was willing to do about it? This is Paul's letters in the New Testament. Every single letter of Paul is about the law was never able to make us right with God, though it was from God. This is why Christ didn't come to abolish it, but fulfill it. Because we couldn't. This is the good news. This is what we call the gospel. And lastly, a lack of belief leads to a demanding of one's own way. When I neglect to believe or when I doubt to the point that my beliefs are completely eradicated, then I demand my own way. Because here's the thing. Our souls were created for God. We weren't created solely just to exist without any purpose. Our purpose is to give glory to God. And we cannot know our true identity or purpose apart from God and truly be fulfilled in this life without being connected to God through Christ. And when we're connected to God through Christ, it's like the veil is pulled back and we see and we know and we understand. It's this thing that faith infuses into us, this assurance of things that we don't see. But those who reject their creator demand their own way. As I said, because our souls have a vacuum when God is not in the place where he should be in our lives. And our souls abhor a vacuum. And it sucks into that space where God is whatever is able to take its place. And I demand my own way. I want my own thing when I want it, how I want it. And if you don't live up to my expectations and do what I expect you to do, and you don't do this and you don't do that, and the pastor doesn't do this, or my wife or my husband doesn't do that, or my children don't do these things, then my whole world comes crashing down. And everybody better steer clear. Because you're going to get the wrath of Brandon, or you're going to get the wrath of fill in the blank. I was that way, wasn't I, Sarah She won't say that because she's way too kind, but there was a season in my life I went through in Ohio when I was a senior pastor there. I was unbearable. I was full of anger. I was full of rage. Didn't make two nickels to rub together and trying to be the sole provider of the family and never having a godly influence of a man in my life to show me how a godly father should be. We have a, a son who's sitting on the front row here. And I'm scared to death. Because I don't know how to be a godly father to a son. Give me all the girls in the world because I had a great relationship with my mom. I can relate and connect with my girls, but I had such a hard time, and I started to spiral. Spiral to the point to where I was desperate, and in my desperate attempts to try to maintain a sense of control, I demanded so much of everybody else because I wasn't being fulfilled, not by them, but by my own lack of belief. Got to the point where Sarah Lee, literally, I think, was within days of packing the kids up and going to Kentucky to give me space. And uh, little did she know, God had been working on me. And here's the miraculous nature of this, and you can hear the story from her lips, because she knows details better than I do, but... She had been waking up every morning, what, four, praying, 
for our relationship for me for months. And clockwork, four o'clock every morning, she was waking up. One morning, she overslept. And this is after months of doing this. And wouldn't it be strange to you if a few weeks after that, we weren't at a conference together, a Church of God conference for pastors and their spouses? <laughs> you know, and I'm this miserable bear of a guy, but we pinpointed it because I told her at that conference, and I remember it's in the parking lot or in the car of the parking lot, I'm done being this way. I got to get help. I can't keep fighting against everybody and everything. And she says, when did you feel that? And I told her when, and she says, that was the morning I overslept. I'm, I'm telling you, I know there were certain things that are coincidence, but there are other things that are miraculous. And I believe in a miraculous God who was able to break the chains of bondage, sin, death, and to deliver us from all sorts of evil, if we're willing to lean into him. And it takes a leaning in and a letting go of this lack of belief that leads to all of these destructive behaviors and recognizing the Savior who came instead of rejecting him. As our worship team comes forward, I want to read you this story, and I want you to know our altars are open as they always are. The altar to my right. If you come and kneel over here, our, our teams of prayer, prayer warriors will be willing to help and pray with you. If you want to pray by yourself, you come to my left, your right. But, but please don't leave without allowing the Holy Spirit to do his work in you, okay? Um, in, in his book entitled Catching the Light... There's a quantum physicist by the name of Arthur Zojic who writes of what he describes, and I want you to hear this, entwined history of light and mind. This is a legitimate thing. This isn't some weird new age junk. Okay, this is medical, um, medical sight and history and all that stuff. And so listen to what he says in his book. From both the animal and human studies that they've done on sight and history and light. He says, we know that there are critical development windows in the first years of human life. Sensory and motor skills are formed during that first year. And if this early opportunity is lost, trying to play catch up is hugely frustrating and mostly unsuccessful. So Professor Zojuk writes of the studies which investigated recovery from congenital blindness. And he says, thanks to corneal transplants, which have been around now for some time, people who had been blind from birth or at least the first year of life would suddenly have functional use of their eyes. But hear this, success was rare. Why was success rare? He says, referring to one young boy, the world does not appear as gifts of intelligible light, color, and shape unto an awakening world. Having been given sight for the first time, seeing people and trees and colors didn't make sense. What do you have to compare it to? And they say those early years of development, when that should have been developing, because they didn't have that, they had no point of reference. And without a point of reference, everything doesn't make sense. Zajak quotes from a study by another doctor named Dr. Moreau who observed that while surgery gave the patient the power to see, the employment of this power, which as a whole constitutes the act of seeing, still has to be acquired from the beginning. Thus, he concludes, to give back sight to a congenitally blind person is more the work of an educator than a surgeon. To which Zajak adds, the sober truth remains that vision requires far more than a functionally physical organ to be able to see. 
without this inner light, without this understanding, without a formative visual imagination, we are blind, he explains. That inner light, the light of the mind, must flow into and marry the light of nature to bring forth the world which we see. How do you see the world? What, what are you blinded to and what is your reality? Because faith is the evidence of things we cannot see. As the author of Hebrews chapter 11 and 12 tells us. And we do have evidence. Just as a congenitally blind person has evidence of a world around them once they're able to see it. But what is the litmus test by which you view everything you see? You can stay blind to the realities of life and the supernatural. Or you can know the word. The living word and the written word that can set you free. This morning, again, I offer you the opportunity to have eyes to see. Jesus says this oftentimes. Those with ears to hear, let them hear. If you have eyes to see, I pray that you'd see. I pray that if you have ears to hear, you would hear not Brandon, but the words of God this morning in a timeless way, some 2,000 years later, speaking to your heart today through the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would be delivered and set free from the bondage of blindness and that you would be given hope beyond hope of this Christ we speak of during this season and hopefully every season. Father, in this place, our desires, if we're being honest with ourselves, are to know you as we are fully known by you. But we struggle with the blanks. And so we get disappointed and frustrated and we fill in the blanks with all of this junk the world tells us we need to carry around, which does nothing but hold us back and push us further to the ground. Give us eyes to see. Illuminate us through the light of Christ this morning. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Set us free from the chains and the bondage of sin and death. And give us a new lease on life through the power of your Holy Spirit this morning. As we renew our hearts, our minds, for your purpose and your service, or maybe even for the first time, we become children of God through the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.